Biblical marriage is a sacred one flesh union of one man and one woman and ought not to be broken except as a last resort under certain circumstances. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. You know, folks, sometimes the timing on things works out very well. Uh, As you know, I'll be going on vacation for two weeks after today. And I'm glad that I'll be going on vacation then because uh, our message today concerns this. Marriage and divorce. And so... If you don't like something I say today, well, I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks. So uh, I figured this would be a good time to say some of these things here then. So we are continuing then in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is in a, a harmony of the Gospels where we've been telling the story of the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ through the lens of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all put together as one harmonious chronological account. We've been following the order as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And today, then, our series brings us to this topic of marriage and divorce. And you see our scripture text there from Matthew and Mark. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, and Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And so the question here then is, what's the big idea? What is the main point uh, that I want us to take away from our message here today? And it is this, that biblical marriage, biblical marriage is a sacred one flesh union of one man and one woman and ought not to be broken except as a last resort under certain circumstances. So a sacred one flesh union, one man, one woman, intended for life and not not to be broken except only as a last resort under certain circumstances. So before we look at our text there then, a little context here. Uh, Jesus has been in Galilee and now he was heading back south to Jerusalem. And he will soon enter Jerusalem for the final week of his earthly ministry, the Passion Week, we call that, which will culminate then in his crucifixion and resurrection. And in our text here today, he is in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That is, that is that area just northeast of Jerusalem across the Jordan River. You might wonder, well, why do I mention that? Well, because it's important for us to know that that area was governed at the time by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, he was a son of Herod the Great, the so-called king of the Jews when Jesus was born. You remember the story of Herod the Great. Well, Herod is long gone now, and now this is one of his sons, Herod Antipas. And you may remember this about Herod Antipas. He had divorced his first wife to marry Herodias, who had been the wife of his half-brother, Philip the Tetrarch. And according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, the two of them fell in love and they made plans to get married while Antipas was visiting with his brother, Philip. Uh, Meanwhile, as this was going on, John the Baptist had begun his ministry 
at this time. And in the course of his preaching and his denunciation of sin, Luke tells us this. He says that, that John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. And Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And then Matthew gives us a little more detail about the wickedness of Herod Antipas. Matthew says, says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod, in fact, he wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Unsurprisingly, Herodias also hated John and wanted to have him killed. And so she hatched a scheme with her daughter whereby she forced her husband's hand. And Matthew tells us on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Now, as Jesus' ministry became more well-known, Herod Antipas then began to fear that John the Baptist had arisen from the dead. And apparently then he wanted to kill Jesus as well. And throughout Jesus' ministry, some of the rulers of the Jews, the Pharisees, plotted with the Herodians, the supporters of Herod, against Jesus. So why do I mention all of this? Well, I suspect it has something to do with the timing of what we're about to read in our text here today. Here our harmony of the Gospels of Matthew 19 and Mark 10 tells us this. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he arose from there and departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So we see here, entrapment. Entrapment. Hmm. I want to ask you, do you think this was a mere coincidence that the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, chose to ask him this particular question when he was in this area which was under the authority of Herod Antipas. Do you think that was a coincidence that they asked that? Of all the questions, of all the issues they had with Jesus, they said, Jesus, uh, what do you think about this? Is, is it lawful is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, for any reason, <clears throat> knowing full well where we are and who's, who's the ruler over this area and what he thinks about that and what he did and what he thinks about you, Jesus? 
Well, I'll let you decide that, but I don't think it's a coincidence. It is also true, though, that this was a very thorny issue among the Jews, as there were two very differing schools of thought on this subject. You know, divorce was a tricky subject then, and it still is today. And undoubtedly, the Pharisees were hoping to embroil Jesus in a controversy over this, and perhaps even trap him into saying something that would put him on the top of Herod's hit list. So the nation was divided over this issue. There had been two leading Jewish scholars at that time. And one of those teachers, named Hillel, he took a very liberal view on divorce, and he taught that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason, even including an improperly cooked meal, even if, I kid you not, even if perhaps he thought her eyebrows were a little too bushy. I would say that's a pretty extreme view on the one hand, wouldn't you there? But there was another scholar, Shammai, who took a much stricter view and said that one could not divorce his wife unless she were guilty of some grave sexual offense. And notice the in- interesting, it's, uh, the focus here is on what, can a, what, what grounds might a man have to divorce his wife? You notice they don't talk so much about the other way. I wonder why that might be, right? So anyway, so this issue, though, about this came down to how they interpreted a particular verse in the book of Deuteronomy. And that was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. We're here, this is in the law of Moses here. We're told this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate and puts her puts it in her hand he sends her out of his house and she departs then out of his house so there's that key word there what is this if he finds some indecency in her what does this indecency in her refer to well the followers of Hillel this very liberal perspective they took it to mean just about anything that the husband found displeasing. Meanwhile, then, the followers of Shammai took it to mean that it referred to some grave sin, a sexual sin. So, what say you, Jesus? The Pharisees asked. What do you think about this, knowing full well where he is, who's ruling there, knowing the division that there is among the people over all this, what are they looking to do? They want to get him entrapped in some way in this. Was Jesus ever trapped? (laughs) No. They tried. They didn't. So he says, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? Have you read the scriptures? Right? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, wrote you this precept and permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he saw the attempt to entrap him, and now we see his explanation. So he doesn't even get involved then in this Hillel Shammai controversy, but he just simply takes them back to the beginning and reminding them of God's original purpose and intent in establishing the marriage bond. He says, God made human beings in his image. In the image of God, he made them what? Male and female. And in marriage then, he joins male and female, man and woman, together into an inseparable bond. And this bond is a higher calling, a higher calling even than the parent-child relationship. It says what? A man what? Shall leave his house, his parents' home, and be joined to his wife then. So they now have a new relationship, a new home, and they are bound together in this one flesh union. What is this one flesh union? Well, it is a relationship that is so tightly intimate and enclosed that it's, it's as if they were one flesh together, right? An inseparable bond that's intended to be permanent. As Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, men ought not to separate or to divorce, to tear apart. So how many of you know, sadly, that sometimes when, this, when divorce has occurred, that it may very well feel almost as if your body is being ripped apart, doesn't it? So the Pharisees then realize that Jesus here is speaking, that he goes back to that God's original design and intention. And he speaks then of the permanence of the marriage relationship. And so they know the scriptures, or at least they think they know the scriptures, right? And they say, well, well, you know, Moses, Deuteronomy 24, one, we, just, we just read that a moment ago, right? He says, uh, Moses there commands then to give a woman, a, a certificate of divorce. So what, why did Moses say that? If it's intended to be a permanent bond, why then did Moses give a provision for divorce? And the Lord's answer was that Moses granted that because what? People's hearts were hard. In other words, what? God has intended marriage to be a sacred union of one man, one woman, one flesh union for life. That's God's intention and design for it. But because of the hardness of people's hearts, 
this provision was made. What does that mean, the hardness of hearts? It means what? That people's hearts are hard toward God and God's truth and God's intention, God's design. We become hard-hearted and we, we what? In other words, what? We are all sinful people, aren't we? We lose touch. We've lost touch with God's design, God's purpose, God's intent. And in our sin, we sin against one another, sometimes grievously, don't we? And because of that then, there was a provision made. But I think it's important for understand that in this provision that was made, when he says Moses commanded that a certificate, see, God knew that people were going to divorce. People were going to break God's intention and design. God knew that, that it would happen because of our hard hearts. But if they were going to do that, the intent of that law then was to provide a certificate of divorce It meant that the woman was receiving some measure of protection in that society. It was saying that she now, she has been lawfully put away. Then She then can be joined to another because a woman didn't have a lot of options in those days. And so it was designed for her protection that if you're going to do, this is not God's intention, but if you're going to do it, This is intended to protect the woman this, but this was not God's design or intention from the beginning for marriage and what marriage should be. See, God intended husbands and wives to live together permanently. So divorce was wrong for that reason. But yet then he says, the disciples come and ask him about this, and Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here, this is sometimes called the exception clause here, where it says, Jesus says that the marriage is designed to be a permanent, inseparable bond. But if there is a case of sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, it's called, to translate some, That word there is actually porneia. You know a word that sounds a lot like that, right? Porneia, it means it's something sexually indecent in some way. That there was something indecent, except for that reason then. Now, Bible scholars then differ over the meaning of this exception clause as it's found here. What is this marital unfaithfulness, sexual immorality? Well, it is porneia. Now, some people feel that Jesus is using this word porneia as a synonym for adultery. But there was another word for adultery called moikia. But some would say, well, this is a synonym for that. And so it's adultery then by either partner in a marriage is a grounds for that marriage to end in divorce. Others would say, well, porneia is a sexual offense that could only occur during the betrothal period when a Jewish man and woman were considered married but had not yet consummated their their coming marriage with sexual intercourse. And that was what was happening in the story there with, with Joseph and Mary. Remember, they were betrothed. 
They were considered legally married, but they had not yet consummated that marriage when Mary was found to be pregnant. So I would say, what did Joseph do? He was looking to divorce her, to quietly put her away. Some would say that's, it's referring to that. Still others believe then that this might uh, apply to some illegitimate marriage because of some discovered kinship that is being too close, being a near relative. And, and in a sense, it's, it's incest. And that would be the only justifiable grounds for divorce. Some say that meaning of porneia is found in, in the book of Acts chapter 15. But there is another view, though, that says porneia refers to a relentless and persistent and unrepentant lifestyle of sexual unfaithfulness as opposed to just a one-time act of illicit relations. And such a continued practice then in that would be the basis for divorce since unfaithful and unrelenting conduct breaks the marriage bond then. So those are what the Bible scholars debate. What does it all mean? What do you think about that? I think what we clearly need to take away is God's original design intention for marriage, which is what? It's a permanent, inseparable bond. But the reality is we are sinful people, aren't we? Husbands and wives, both. (laughs) And divorces are going to happen then. What are we to make of all of this? Well, it's clear that Jesus' disciples got the point about Jesus that he was saying marriage is a sacred, inseparable bond. So look, because look what they say next. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Wow, if, if, that, if that's serious, if, if, if it's that, then maybe it's just better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So we see entrapment and explanation and then this discussion of eunuchs. So whatever view one might take on that exception clause, what is the meaning of porneia there? Jesus is obviously affirming, though, the permanence of marriage, the intentional permanence of marriage. But those who heard his words understood him in this way And they were thinking, wow, if this is how it is, maybe it's just better off. Maybe it's just better just not to marry if that's the case. But that was not Jesus' intention. Because marriage is good. How many of you would say marriage is good? I I was hoping for a few more hands than that, right? (laughs) It is. How many of you know marriage can be hard? How many of you know marriage can be painful? But God's intention is good. And so Jesus isn't saying, well, 
given God's intention and the, and the seriousness of it, yeah, just, just don't get married then. No. He's saying, you know, there are some then that do not marry. Calls them eunuchs here. He says, what? Some are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. That is what? These were, these were men who were at some kind of birth defect or something that they were not able to get married and have normal sexual relations. These others were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking in, the, in those days that a eunuch, well, this was a man who'd been castrated in order to serve in the king's court where he took care of the king's harem. Ouch, exactly. <laughs> and he says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That is, they do not marry for the purpose of greater ministry in the church. Now it's important for us to understand this is figurative and not literal, and I am extremely thankful for that. (laughs) I debated about whether or not to say it, but I just said it anyway. (laughs) So he's saying what? So there are some, through some birth defect, they're eunuchs. Others, they're made eunuchs by men. But some, what? They willingly forego marriage for the benefit of the kingdom of heaven, for greater undistracted service in the kingdom of heaven. But he says, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Not everyone can accept not being married. In fact, most people cannot. But Some can, and those who can, if they can, should, that is, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, should accept it as such. So, most people are designed and intended for marriage. Some people, though, are given a role of singleness. Many marry and carry out God's purposes for them and do God's work in the world for them as married people. But some people God has given the gift of singleness. And those who can accept that should accept that. By the way here, as I was looking at this this word for singleness here, uh, I decided to look up uh, some synonyms for singleness. And I have to tell you, I am not sure who came up with this list. But it's there when you do like an online search, you know, synonyms for singleness. This is what I found. Uh, I, I don't know who came up with the list, but I found it somewhat amusing. See what you think. Detachment. Okay. Emptiness. Isolation. Loneliness. Reclusiveness. Separateness. Waste. Wasteland. Wilderness. And the very last one, peace and quiet. (laughs) Yes! There it is. Mm -hmm. I don't know who came up with that list, but it's really something, isn't it? And I'm sitting, I'm just, I'm getting more and more depressed. And then finally, peace and quiet. Oh, yes. Thank you. How many of you can relate? Peace and quiet. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Which brings us to the divorce debate. 
Are there biblical grounds for divorce? And if so, what are they? Well, I do believe that the Bible gives two grounds for divorce, as we see there in the text. One is porneia, sexual immorality, whatever that may mean. I tend to see that as referring to a, a, a blatant and willful, intentional life of immorality, unfaithfulness. Or the second, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, which is the abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever. So sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. But I think it's important to say, though, but even in these two instances, though, divorce is not required. Rather what? Confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration should always be sought first. Divorce then should only be viewed as a last resort after all else has been tried to fix it. Then I say, well, okay, but what about, is, are you saying that's all? Are those the only valid reasons to divorce? Is that, is are the only grounds that the Bible gives? Aren't there other grounds maybe? Well, I would say, well, perhaps, but we must be very careful not to presume upon the word of God. That is to go beyond what the word of God says. But what about, aren't there other, aren't there horrible things that happen in a marriage? Yes. Well, what, what about that? What do we do about that? Well, like here's a, one Bible scholar says this. He says, the, mo- the most frequent additional grounds for divorce that people inquire about are spousal abuse, emotional abuse or physical, child abuse, addiction to pornography, drug, alcohol, crime, imprisonment, mismanagement of finances, such as a gambling addiction. And those are horrible things, right? But I would say, but none of those can be claimed, though, to be explicit biblical grounds for a divorce. That does not necessarily mean, though, that none of them are grounds for which God would give consent. For example, he says, we cannot imagine that it would be God's desire for a wife to remain with a husband who physically abuses her and and or their children. And in such an instance, the wife should definitely separate herself and the children from the abusive husband. I think a time of separation, ideally always there should be a goal of repentance and restoration, always, but sometimes that just simply is not going to happen. But please understand by by saying the above that they may not be explicit biblical grounds for divorce. We're definitely not saying that someone should remain in that situation in which they are subject then to that kind of abuse. I don't believe that at all. I think, unfortunately, far too many people have been given bad counsel over the years in the church and, and encouraged to stay in a relationship where there were such horrible things like that going on. I don't think that was proper. So in summary, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? Well, I'd say the answer is sexual immorality and abandonment. Are there additional grounds for divorce beyond those two? 
possibly, but divorce should never be treated lightly or as the first recourse. God is capable of changing and reforming any person. He's capable of healing and renewing any marriage. So divorce should not only occur, I I believe that divorce should occur only in instances of repeated and unrepentant heinous sin. Well, this raises all kinds of issues then. You see why I'm going on vacation afterwards with this, by the way? (laughs) Raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it, about singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage. What do you say, pastor? What do you say about all this? Well, I say two words. Stay tuned. How many of you knew that was coming? All right. No, actually, I anticipate a major sermon series on all of this coming to a church near you. But in the meantime, in brief, first off, singleness and marriage are both gifts of God. And they should be received with thanksgiving. You know, some people have been given the gift of marriage and they're not very happy about it, actually. They, they may have received it joyfully, but they're, they're not receiving it joyfully now. There are others who are single folks who they want to take their gift back to the customer return aisle or return desk, right? But the fact is both of them are gifts from God. God designed and intended marriage for the joy and the welfare of human beings. It is a sacred, one flesh union of one man and one woman and is intended to be permanent. But given the realities of life in a fallen world, as men and women who still have a sinful nature within us, divorces will happen. And the Bible gives marital unfaithfulness and abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever as grounds for divorce, but that while it's permissible, it's not required, and it shouldn't be sought first off. If at all possible, reconciliation should be sought. But sometimes, due to hardness of hearts, that is not possible. And there are a number of other instances which may call for, at the least, separation. The Bible does not specifically mention these as grounds for divorce, and I would be hesitant to attempt to make the Bible say something that it does not. However, people may choose to divorce in those instances, but it's never a good thing or a desirable thing. Divorce always involves sin, but divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And God's grace is infinitely greater than our sin, and he is able to cleanse, renew, and restore us whatever our past may be. Amen? I also know that we have some hurting couples in our church. And I believe that the church needs to be a place of help, of healing, of encouragement. And I intend for our church to be such a place. And my heart goes out to all of you who I know are hurting. So to that I say, stay tuned. So what? What do we do in the meantime? Well, a reminder, biblical marriage, biblical marriage is a sacred one flesh union of one man and one woman and ought not to be broken except as a last resort under certain circumstances.
applying the text. If you are single and desire to marry, seek God first and prepare. If you're single and you desire to marry, seek God first and prepare. God comes first in our lives. Single or married, God comes first, right? For some, I know what this is. I, I'm very familiar with this pressure. There, is this, there can be this pressure, especially within the church, and I know it comes from a good place, and it is meant with the best of intentions. But there is this great pressure sometimes to get married. You gotta get married. You gotta get married. And I think marriage is for most people, but it isn't for everyone, is it? But if you're single and you do desire to marry, first and foremost, what? Seek God first. What's more important than anything else is your relationship with God. You know, I think that there are um, um, any number of misconceptions people can have about marriage. It's one of the things I do when, when meeting with, with couples who want to get married, we go through a, a course of pre-marriage counseling, and one of the things we talk about, we deal with some of the myths of marriage. The question is asked, have you dealt with the myths of marriage honestly? One of those myths of marriage is that somehow, well, marriage is going to make me happy. How many of you know, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, <laughs> how many of you know marriage does not automatically make you happy? Maybe it does for a little while. We call it what? The honeymoon period? There's a reason why we have that term, right? But then reality sinks in. Our joy, our happiness in life, our ultimate meaning comes not from marriage. Although marriage can be a wonderful thing. It comes from what? God and our relationship with God. So seek God first. He is the ground of our happiness. He is the ground of our joy. So if you want to marry, that's good, but seek God first as your ground of happiness. Seek his counsel in this. And then if you feel free to pursue, okay, but first prepare. Prepare for marriage. What does that look like? Well, it might look a little different for each individual, but I've always loved this, uh, this, this quote or this uh, verse in Proverbs it's Proverbs 24, verse 27. Remember, this is written in, a, in an agricultural society, an agrarian society. And it seems, to, it has one meaning on a literal level, but I think it has a much deeper meaning on a figurative level. But we're told this, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, Build your house. Okay, so what? So in other words, wait, there's certain affairs you need to put in order. If you're going to build your first, you know, get get your vocational life in order. Get everything ready for you, and then and then you build your house. Well, I don't think it's just talking about a literal house there. I think it's talking about what a home, a marriage, and a family. In other words, what there are certain things that need to be put in order in our lives before we get married. Now, do not for a minute think that that means, well, we got to get everything perfect and then you're ready for me because you're never going to, right? But nevertheless, it means what? Don't go into marriage unprepared. Get things in order in your life. And that may look different for, for each person. But get those things in order in your life, then marry. So if you're single, you desire, seek God first. 
He is the ground of your joy, your happiness. Seek his counsel and then prepare. Are there things in your life that maybe God is saying to you, you need to put that in order? There's much more that could be said about that, but stay tuned. Coming to a church near you later. If you are married and you are unhappy, seek God first and repair. Seek God first. Find your completion, if you will, your joy in God and in your relationship with God. And if at all possible, then seek to repair that relationship. Don't just divorce. Seek to repair, if at all possible. If you are married and are happy, seek God first. By the way, are you seeing a a pattern here in that? Seek God first and mentor. Be a mentor to others, to single people who are contemplating marriage, to married couples who are struggling. We all need good mentors in our lives, don't we? Single, married and unhappy, married and happy, whatever your situation, seek God first. Prepare, repair, mentor. Mentor others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gifts that you have given us, many gifts, including the gifts of singleness and of marriage. And I pray, Father, that we would see those things as the gifts that they are to us. I know, Lord, that there are, there are many who are hurting here in our church family. Some are single and want to be in a relationship, want to be married. Others are married and, and uh, they're really struggling. They're hurting, Lord. So God, I, I pray for those hurting folks in our midst here that I know whatever our circumstance, what we all must do is to seek you first. You are the ground of our being, Lord. You are our creator. We have been made to know you and to be in relationship with you. And it is in that right relationship with you, Lord, that we find our ultimate connection and purpose and meaning, our happiness and our joy is in you and in knowing you, the ground of our being. But Lord, whatever our marital circumstance might be, I pray that we would find that happiness and joy in you. That if we are single and desire to marry, that we would prepare that work outside, make it ready for ourselves in the field, and then afterwards build our house. That we would put in order those things in our lives that you are putting your finger on our lives to to handle to have realistic expectations, to have done the hard work of preparing our hearts for that commitment, that covenant. And Lord, for those couples that are struggling, I pray, Lord, that they would see divorce is not a first option, it's a last option. And I know for many that's exactly how they think. They do see it as a last option. Maybe they feel like they're drowning right now. They don't know what to do. So, Father, I I pray for your encouragement for them today, and I pray that you would show us as a church how we can help, how we can come along to mentor, to guide, to pray, to encourage, Lord. And, Lord, I pray, thank you for the, I thank you for these these healthy, strong marriages that we have in in our church family here, too. 
May they be wonderful examples for us, but Lord, would you put upon their hearts and minds how they can be mentors to others. Would you bring, would you bring a, a single person or a, a, a hurting couple into their lives that they might speak into their lives wisdom, your word, and your truth. Thank you, Father, for these gifts. May we steward them well. May we seek you first always. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.